Overcoming adversity is not surviving your hangover the night before. That's a part of your job. That's your paycheck. You should have figured that out in college. Overcoming adversity, in my opinion, is at those critical moments of truth, do I leave a company early and not do a proper exit, right? Do I not give my two weeks notice? Do I hop between jobs every six months to get an extra 10K? Do I work for any company regardless of the company's reputation? Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. Joining Brad on Decision Point today is Amal Williams, a partner at Reveal Group, Amal is a classically trained marketing executive with a background in monetizing new and adjacent technology. Amal excels at go-to market strategy, raw architecture, and RPA and IPA technologies that help you automate your business. Join Amal and Brad as they talk about creating a culture of excellence and what that really means. Yeah, so here's the thing for me, right? So just as by way of pedigree and background, I was a three-sport captain in college, very active throughout the entire school year. And I had to have different levels of conditioning for each one of the sports. And so part of being soccer dad that I like is one of the sports I didn't play was soccer, right? But I know there are some principles that are foundational to all sports, right? So it's going to be conditioning, right? It's gonna be coachability, right? It's gonna be availability. And then it's gonna be teamwork and sportsmanship. To me, all sports have those elements. I think those are things that regardless of your skill set, you can strive towards achieving or attaining. Right. Additionally, my aunt gave me this additional charter. It kind of intimidated me. So when she interviewed at Facebook and got the gig uh, there, she talked about she wanted her work to be beautiful. Right. She never wanted somebody to question the caliber or the quality of her work. She always wanted to create an output that said this person is invested. This person is informed. This person cares about the outcome. And I think some of the lessons when we talk about sports, it's I don't learn a lot from the teams that are undefeated. I really don't. Right. Because. Being undefeated is only hard if you lose to somebody who isn't as good as you. The teams that I like are the one and two loss teams because it's like, how did you bounce back from Utopia? So what I what I typically see is in healthy sports cultures, right? The folks that are in the lead or the starters, they have earned that right and the backups don't question. It's like Jeff is better than me, right? Todd is exceptional or whatever it may be as, as, as my qualifier. So with my son, he's very good at sports to the extent to which a seven-year-old can be good, right? So path of least resistance, you know, high velocity scoring and all these other things like that, right? But now as the kids are catching up and it's becoming more competitive, this is where that discipline comes in of, am I on time? Am I early? Am I ready mentally? Am I helping my teammates and all of those things? And so for me, I honestly don't care about the outcome of the game because they're so young that we don't even measure it. And during the pandemic, we gave up most of the measurement. What I am going to be um, concerned about is the effort while he's on the pitch because he's a bigger kid, right? The kids look up to him. They respond, they interact with him differently based upon the success of the game. And so to me, when I played college sports, I never wanted my backup to be like, Amal's just there because he's bigger than me and genetics and what have you. I wanted to be somebody where I gave an effort and I had a pedigree around my work ethic where they said, you know what? Not only should I aspire to do the things that he's doing, but I think he's doing the things that put him in a position to be successful. And, you know, I love that part of the game because there's plenty of guys on, on every team, Akron, you know, Iona, wherever you look, there's second and third string guys who are never going to touch the field other than blowouts and maybe special teams, right? 
that's not their story. That's not their legacy. Their legacy is all the practices, all the bus rides, managing the workload. So you're grinding it out on in the classroom during the day. You're prioritizing your physical fitness during the rest of the time. And then there's your conduct as a part of the team off the field. So there's just so many more life lessons about sports than the outcome of the game that I thought that that would be a nice carryover into business, right? It's not about the work that gets published. It's what you learned about the work that didn't get published and how you can repurpose it and leverage it kind of going forward. It's not about the first customer. It's, uh, I got this from my last interview. I think Kelsey saw this. It's about how your company has to change to make sure it stays above $10 million for the rest of its existence. And some of those behaviors and patterns are like practice. Are we documenting process? Is the process repeatable and scalable? Have we gotten the folks who are part of the team to buy into the vision? Have we taken their feedback? So now they own some of the process. And so when I look at those things, there are a lot of corollaries and overlaps, but I just don't want my son to look at them as binary, right? So when he's doing his classwork, he does really well at STEM stuff because he has half of my brain and the other half is my wife's brain. I want him to race towards the things that he's weak at, right? And I don't want him to slack at the things that he's strong at. And so that's where I coach him. I don't want to say I coach my, my colleagues because that's not what I do. With my colleagues, I share my vision. I tell them why I think they're special and what I think that they do well. And then I kind of have them pitch back to me their vision. So it's like based upon your understanding of what we need to do to be successful and how I kind of talked about you, what I like about you, how I think you can help all of us be successful. You know, which parts of this do you want to own? And that's new for me. Before I was a partner, I didn't have to do that. It was more like, do what I say, because I have measurements that I have to meet and reach. And now it's more collaborative. I think it's, you know, threefold. People who I work with, they want to sit in my seat at some point in time. Two, I have to do some mentoring as an organic part of my job. And three, what we're doing has to make sense or we shouldn't be doing it. And that's, that's really, you know, kind of how I look at it holistically, Brett, if that makes sense. Now, tell me a little bit about the business. Just walk us through kind of how you got there and then talk about the business today. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you look at RPA plus, IPA plus, so robotic process automation, intelligent process automation, at its core, it's just data processing, right? So if you have a lot of people, 70 analysts doing a lot of the similar work, 100 accountants doing a lot of the similar work, what we're trying to do is take away some of the mundane tasks from your back and middle office employees to improve their quality of life, to improve the quality of the inputs, and to allow businesses to scale cost effectively. RPA is a part of that story. IPA is including the humans as a part of that story. So how do robots and people work together to improve the business outcomes, right? Reducing errors and et cetera. So I'm four years in the industry now. Are you guys doing those installs or are you doing consulting around that? So great question, right? So there's the software, right? There's the services, and then there's the technical services that I would call. So we do all three. We partner with the top right quadrant, top right corner of the Gartner quadrant, right? And we provide implementation services based upon the customer's maturity. So no robots, some robots, what the heck happened to the bots, right? I call them digital hippies, right? Get those digital hippies a job. And so those are our core customers. But I would say, you know, for me, from where I started to where I am, the guys who gave me my first start, they founded Wonderbots. They were the founders of the uh, robotics practice at EY. It's the best boot camp that I've been to professionally in ever, period. And part of that pedigree is why I got recruited to be uh, the first black partner at Reveal Group, twofold. Reveal Group takes DEI initiatives very seriously. I will tell you to a brand, my hiring has been merit-based, but the importance of having me at this level of the business is to ensure that we walk the talk from top to bottom. 
right? So finding talent, helping talent matriculate. I'm starting at HBCUs and kind of working my way up. So why I like it here, to your point, the co-founders took a very serious stance on it and they're matching that with resources and funding, which I love. So that's really exciting to me. I have, you know, 12 to 20 peers that I would call out between the US and Australia in total. And we were the top uh, right portion of the Forrester Wave this year for mid-sized uh, firms. So top 15 in our space, you know the top four, you know all of them, right? Right below that tier, top tier level is where this company resides. And how we got there was our strategy. And our second part was our customer satisfaction. And part of that reason is in the services we provide, we also provide a software solution that reduces the time of the labor required to be successful by 30%. And our peers do not have that. I mean, excuse me, our, our co-opetition, they don't have those uh, credentials. Now, is that GenieCast? Is that the product? That no, so actually, you know, it's funny. GenieCast was born out of on-demand access to subject matter expertise. So it was like okay. a for consultants. And I started actually in reporting and analytics. So I was a marketing person. And I shifted to digital transformation. So, so talk a little bit about digital transformation, because I think a lot of people, you know, it's a, at some point it becomes a buzzword, right? So I, I think everybody probably understands that, hey, the COVID hit. This is what I, from the outside, COVID hit. Yep. Something happened in digital transformation that right. hasn't happened before. But what that is, I don't think anybody knows. So I'm going to let you sort of talk a little bit. You nailed it, Brad. If you look at that hashtag, there's like, you know, there's hairstylists in there, you know, there's there's e-commerce platforms. I mean, I don't know, you know, you know, there's some Pinterest links. I think if you look at traditional business, right, this is business school 101, people, process, and technology, and they were all equally weighted, right? So the people did a process or procedures, which are comprised of multiple processes, and they either use technology a lot or a little, right? And typically analyst firms will tell you, technology enables business outcomes. So the companies that use less tech aren't as effective as those that use more tech. In RPA, IPA, automation, transformation, in the broader scope of things, when you're doing digital processing or data processing of large amounts of information, what you're doing is you're eliminating those traditional pitfalls. So personal fatigue, quality, lack of familiarity with systems. So now instead of people process tech all being the same size finger, Tech is the largest finger. Gotcha. Right? Process is the primary consideration for automation, right? And then in the people use case, because we're taking a lot of the work off of their plate, which type of subject matter experts are we interacting with the most? So if you just do that little pivot where you say the work needs to be done, does a human need to do it? Yes or no, we'll figure that out. And then for the humans that are still interacting with the robots on a very frequent basis, is the quality of the outcome greater than it was before? And in almost every single use case that we see, we know the answer there is yes. So to me, digital transformation is digitizing the organization, automating the processes around your core platforms and freeing up your highly valuable employees, right? To do higher level work, but also reducing attrition and churn because of the fatigue of doing, you know, repetitive processes. So could you give me a quick, you know, quick little illustration of what a project would might look like or a problem that might be solved? Yeah, I mean, let me do the most basic one. It's my favorite one. So it's my first one. So um, there's a large medical center and college north of Boston. Their mascot is called the Catamounts. And when you looked at payroll, it was about 10,000 plus people submitting time cards, not submitting time cards, you know, manager approval, escalations, incomplete, the entire like, you know, just mayhem that is payroll. Just, just, so a, they, pro just a big old process of people. Right, exactly, right? But the first thing, Brad, right, can we describe it, how it's done today, right? That's number one. Can we capture it? And then can we 
transform it. So what used to happen is they ran payroll weekly. I didn't realize how painful that was. Before I talked to you guys, I was talking to the former head of payroll at General Motors UK, I believe is where he was. And he was, he made it very, he just brass taxes for me. He said, I'm all, he's like, when the check stops, so doesn't the plant. And I go, Jesus. Right? Like, <laughs> I was like, don't know how to say it more than that. So at the hospital, at the medical center, if you don't pay your students, if you don't pay your interns, if you don't pay your uh, employees, right? They stop showing up. They throw up picket signs and what have you. So nope. each week, the payroll team would stay all day, calling, reminding, being like, Kelsey, come on, man. Tell Brad to submit his timesheet, like decline it or approve it or what have you. Right. And so when I first mapped the process, they just said, all, if everything is complete, pay the employee. If there are exceptions, apply the business rules and escalate it accordingly. And I won't get into the skunk works of how the automation works. But basically, my favorite part of the interview was at the end. When I talked to Curtis and I said, hey, what's it like now that you have automation around Kronos? And there's nothing wrong with Kronos, right? And he was like, Monday used to be the worst day of the week. And he goes, and now we can leave after lunch if we want to. I can take half days. So automation. That's a great marketing campaign. I can leave after lunch. Yeah, dude, don't miss happy hour. And I know it sounds fanciful when I say it, but there are certain things that we all do on a monthly basis that could be done by uh, a software application interacting with other software, right? So that's RPA. Once the data processing is done, the cost of doing business goes down, right? So that's one of the drivers. And then you attract different talent because of how progressive your company is. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They will outperform their peers. I buy their stocks when they do so, and I make more money uh, without having a conflict of interest, right? So I can't do it for every customer, but for the ones where it's not inappropriate for me to do it, I watch them, especially in e-commerce and especially in travel uh, management systems, they're outperforming the marketplace because they've started to automate the mundane task. And the talent will start to come to them because they say, hey, you know what? 100% of this job was mine before transformation. Now only 25% of it is mine. So what else can I do with that time? Now, are there things that you feel like the technology can't? So, you know, obviously there's an explosion of AI. So like in, in our business, we provide a dialing product. The way that I like to think about it is, you know, even with all the increase um, around AI, there's a lot of stuff that the technology can't do. So the technology can't tell the difference between Kelly, the guy and Kelly, the girl. It can't <laughs> tell the difference. You know, it, it can't. It has no contextual understanding of what's what's occurring on a phone. So if you're getting transferred to offices or somebody's telling you to, all of that is stuff that a computer can't process, maybe in some day, someday it can, but it can't now. And yeah. so what we do is when we can use technology to dial the phone, we, we use technology. And when we need to bring a person in for context or for decision-making, we're going to bring, a, we're going to bring a person in. What it looks like is at the end of the day, just like your client got paid, our right. client's going to get a conversation with a with the process, but under the hood, we are automating the things we are trying to use technology where we can and people where we where we need to to ultimately get the the final and ultimate result. So there is a kind of a version. But for you, when you guys go in and do a project, is there actual? So there is some technology, like in the payroll example, you guys are deploying some kind of technology alongside whatever applications they're using to automate everything. Correct. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. Okay. The best way to define it, the best recent definition that I've seen was by Phil um, from Horses for Sources. Um, Horses for Sources. Yeah. What's, yeah is yeah. that is that a company or is that like a blog? Is that a blog? That's funny. So it started off as a blog. Now it's one of the niche marketing services firms in my industry. Okay. They are, they are the voice of reason in my space. So okay. we rely on them. But Phil said something brilliant. 
He's like, it's a product and it's a service. So when you think about the software, right? We all bought CRM software. We all yep. bought office software, right? Once you purchase the software, it can perform functions for us, right? So it's not about the human interacting with the software constantly. It's about the software interacting with other applications in your system when your laptop is closed, when you're asleep in these other times. So when we look at the solutions that we deliver, first, we train people on how to use the software so they can do it themselves, right? Second, we do the hard, you know, hard hitting, heavy lifting things where it's like, when do the humans interact with the robots and then also the customers in the contact center? So I was at sites before this, right? And we were looking at using robots in the contact center to improve average handle time, right? To access legacy applications to make sure we had a single view of the customer, but also to help them prioritize uh, offers based upon the sentiment analysis of how the conversation is going, right? So it's one thing to key in and say, hey, Amal, when you talk to Brad, use metaphors, use examples in the CRM system, or hey, you know, Amal's cranky on Mondays when he calls in and asks for credits. It's about how is the current call going? And is that impacting the customer experience across our entire footprint? I love I love technology there because now we're working together and that's where we get the high value, high ROI, you know, the use cases you see on TV, like Verizon's a perfect example, right? Verizon's using chatbots, contact center bots, back office transformation, automation across all these other areas. They were already outperforming their peers. When they add a layer of automation to this, they reduce the cost of doing business and Tammy looks like a rock star, right? Money went up. That's how I look at it. At no, you said you said Verizon, right? Yeah, massive. Oh, okay. Massive. Yeah, massive yeah, yeah. 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 Um, exciting. So, so part, so part of the, so I'm going to transition a little bit. So, part of the podcast is we kind of got a dual role. So, one thing we talk about is we talk about setback, yeah. and then the other thing we talk about is we talk about you know cover the stuff that we just cover around sales and and uh, sure. what what's happening in the market. So, what we haven't covered is we haven't covered you know is is it sounds like you probably had, you know, it sounds like your parents instilled some discipline in you. Yeah. And I'm guessing that you've probably had some adverse situations that you've had to overcome to get oh. to where you're at. So I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear if you, ha if you have one of those that you want to share. I know it's like, which one do you choose? Right. So I, I when I introduce myself, I introduce myself in the, through the lenses of the last four years. Cause I think it takes 15 to get to where I am to be candid. Right. And all of that, you know, shadow boxing and sword fighting, it's about learning who you are professionally and where you can be successful. So when I was young, my mom would not let me quit anything, right? So this is kind of my current perspective. She's like, I'm all, you're taking Ken Poe, can't quit. You know, you're going to be in the plays at school, can't quit. I'm not letting you try out for the basketball team if you can't make a layup with two hands, right? So the nice part about coming from generations of military folks, but also generations of athletes on both sides of the family is that they understood what was material to my success, diet, conditioning, practicing, and all these other things like this. And again, like with the initial example I gave, my mom viewed it the same way, right? So she was better in academia than I was. It's funny, my wife is actually a better student than I was as well, but I wasn't a bad student, dean's list, et cetera, did well on and off. But I think the common thing for me, when I look at adversity, adversity is not about making good choices versus bad choices, right? Because my son's a child of privilege, so is my daughter. They only have good choices to make, literally. It's like, which school do you want to go to? Which sneakers would you like to wear? Which meal would you like to have? And what we don't realize, and this is a staggering number to me, I'm less than 1% of where I grew up, right? That made it out of college, made it into profession, has white collar job. Let's just call that making it for the sake of the exercise. Along the way, every four years or so, 
I had a critical mass decision to choose principal over comfort. So when I first got into university, I'm not going to say any names here. It's the, it's the critical decisions that you make, right? It's not the everyday decisions to go because we all have to wake up, show up on time, do our best. That got to do that. It's the critical decisions when, you know, one of your best friends says to you, hey, Amal, here's a pound of weed. If you sell this during the school year, you'll make 40 grand or something like that, selling it to your classmates because I didn't do drugs, right? Um, and I basically remember having this conversation. I was, a, I, was a, I was a second part of my freshman year. And I was like, how much money is it? He tells me the numbers and what have you. I'm like, well, what's the risk? And he's like, well, you know, you go to jail. <laughs> like you're selling it. Like it's not going to work out. And I was like, man, if I stay here and I graduate, not only do I make 10, 15, 20K more than what you just told me, but I don't have to worry about the cops. Right? Best friend, high school teammate. He has a different life than I do now. And for me, it was like, if I wasn't willing to sacrifice for short term, I never would have got to the long term. Right? And I had a receiver on my college team. I'm not going to use names here. He got locked up for six years, right? And when he got out, guess what, Brad? Here's the scary part. The people you owe money to are still looking for you. <laughs> yeah, they so, never stop, right? right. And I'll, I'll stop right there because I, I want this to be a positive kind of yep. conversation. But I'll tell you, overcoming adversity is not surviving your hangover the night before. That's a part of your job. That's your paycheck. You should have figured that out in college. Overcoming adversity, in my opinion, is at those critical moments of truth, do I leave a company early and not do a proper exit, right? Do I not give my two weeks notice? Do I hop between jobs every six months to get an extra 10K? Do I work for any company regardless of the company's reputation? Those are moments of adversity where I have to make a critical decision about myself and say, do I want to be associated with these brands professionally, right? So for me, overcoming adversity was how did I find a career in an industry where the next 25 years of my life are going to be on my terms, at fair market value. So I could have stayed in my previous industry and never did robotics. I'd, I'd be somewhere else. We probably wouldn't even be talking. But I chose this specific adversity because I knew that after I did my training, got my certificates and what have you, I saw the industry information and I said, man, these folks are doing pretty well, right? They have a very clear matriculation path. And when they do a good job at what they do, they win awards, right? I'm like, this reminds me of like what it was like when I first got out of work, you know, annual, annual events, you know, celebrations, you know, networking, you know, work being fun. And so for me, one of my friends said, hey, Maul, you know, you've experienced so much adversity that you're not afraid to take risks. And I go, you know, the only risk that there is, Jason, I'll tell you his name. I said is the only risk that I would have had, the only adversity that I would have faced is if I stayed and I didn't change. And so when we talk about future work and digital transformation, there are a lot of folks right now in jobs, right? When they look at their resume objectively, right? They're missing out on opportunities to increase their fair market value and their annual earnings. You have to take the first kind of couple of steps. So to me, it's get certified, get exposure. And then lastly, ask yourself, am I positioned to be successful over the next 10 to 15 years in my industry? And if the answer is no, you have to do something different. All right. This, this was, that's great. That is great stuff. I'm all, I, I, this has been, this has been an awesome, this has been an awesome conversation. So I hope you guys enjoyed that as always. Uh, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can get last season's uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time.